Today on Golden Girl Sports, we line up a bunch more horse racing references at the starting gate. Marcus Allen. Mike Tyson. Extra innings. The tight end decoys, so it looks like we're running a draw play. Magic Johnson. Bobby Old. Tampa Bay Bucks. And they're off! The pig takes the lead! The chicken... In our last episode, we talked about All Bets Are Off, the Season 5 episode in which Dorothy deals with her gambling addiction. But that was far from the only time horse racing was mentioned on the Golden Girls. It was used not just as a symbol of Sophia's irascibility, but as something of a Petrillo family hallmark. Sophia's Wedding was a two-part episode that aired on November 19th and 26th, 1998, as the sixth and seventh episodes of Season 4. Both halves were written by Barry Finero and Mort Nathan and directed by Terry Hughes. The first time we mentioned it was back in episode 7. When Sophia's longtime friend Esther Weinstock passes away, she and Dorothy return to Brooklyn for the funeral. There, Sophia encounters Esther's husband Max, against whom she has held a grudge for decades. Max and Salvador had been in business together, running a pizza kinish stand on Coney Island, until Max caused the business to bust when he lost all their money on a horse. But at the funeral, Max comes clean and tells the real story of how the business went under. Sophia, I kept a secret for 40 years because I didn't want to break your heart. But now that I know it's made of stone, you might as well know the truth. Brooklyn, 1949. We were sitting at this table playing a spirited game of gin. Oh. <laughs> That's four in a row tonight, you lucky night, Sal. I hope that'll continue once we get home. <laughs> <laughs> the man buys a new T-shirt, trims the hair out of his ears. Suddenly, he's Charles Boyer. <laughs> so how was business today? Terrific. We didn't have a pizza or a knish left on the shelf. Oh. Well, I'd, uh, I'd love a cup of coffee, huh? I'll get everybody some. Here, let me help. Max, uh, there's something I have to tell you. What's wrong? The week's receipts. I lost them on a horse. You what? I got a tip. It was supposed to be a sure thing. I don't believe it. That means we're out of business. We're through. So's my marriage. When Sophia finds out about it, she'll put me out on the street. Max, I'm sorry. Coffee will be ready in a minute. Oh, uh, Sophia, um, I have something to tell you. Wait, wait, wait. Let me, let me tell her. Sophia, we're out of business. I gambled the money away. That's not true. I wish it wasn't. That's what happened. I'm sorry, Sophia. I don't believe it. This is insane. Calm down. Calm down? Calm down. Did you hear what he just said? This guy came to me. Salvador wanted to tell you, but I wouldn't let him. I cared for you both too much to let your marriage break up. And Sal felt so guilty he never gambled again. It was worth it. That was a very lovely thing you did, Mr. Weinstock, wasn't it, Ma? Wasn't it, Ma? With the truth out in the open, Sophia and Max form a truce. Back in Miami, where Rose and Blanche have founded their own unauthorized Elvis Presley fan club, Dorothy walks in on Sophia and Max in bed together. Oh, and they've decided to get married. At first, Dorothy adamantly refuses to give the wedding her blessings. But when she realizes that she simply didn't want Sophia to move on from Sal, she changes her mind and the wedding actually happens, in front of an audience of Elvis impersonators mistakenly invited by Rose. In the second part, 
Sophia and Max move in with the rest of the girls, causing a lot of tension and driving Dorothy to take up smoking again. After a walk on the beach, the newlyweds decide to relive their old dream by opening up their own pizza kinish stand. But after a grand opening, the stand burns down and Dorothy thinks a cigarette she had left burning was the cause. Turns out it was an electrical problem, which means the insurance company will reimburse them for all the money they lost. But Sophia and Max decide to separate, knowing that their marriage can't ever compare to the ones they had with their previous spouses. Max returns to Brooklyn, Sophia returns to the house on Richmond Street, and nobody eats at a pizza kinish stand ever again. Max Weinstock was played by Jack Guilford, who was a prolific actor on stage, screen, film, and commercials for over 50 years. Born Jacob Aaron Gelman on the Lower East Side of Manhattan in 1907, Guilford grew up in the Williamsburg section of Brooklyn with his mother, who was a bootlegger during Prohibition. He started out in vaudeville and telling jokes and hosting in nightclubs like Cafe Society, the first integrated club in New York City. In addition to jokes, Guilford did pantomime and impressions with funny angles like an eagle who has just learned his daughter is pregnant or pea soup coming to a slow boil. Jacob's funny impersonations impressed Milton Berle, who took him on as a vaudeville sidekick, provided he changed his name, therefore becoming Jack Guilford. From there, he moved on to Broadway, where he did Meet the People, The Diary of Anne Frank, and Once Upon a Mattress, among others. He was nominated for a Tony in 1963 for his work in A Funny Thing Happened on the Way to the Forum with Zero Mostel, and won the Best Actor in a Musical Tony four years later for playing Herr Schmidt in Cabaret. During the 1950s, Guilford was blacklisted from Hollywood after taking the Fifth Amendment in front of the House Un-American Activities Committee. He didn't get film or TV work for 10 years, but became a sought-after stage actor, capable of creating memorable characters, sometimes without even any dialogue. Once his blacklisting ended, he appeared on TV shows in the 60s, ranging from sitcoms like Car 54 and Get Smart, to dramas like The Defenders and movies of popular Broadway shows. By the 70s, it was on to feature films, like They Might Be Giants and Save the Tiger, for which he was nominated for an Oscar for Best Supporting Actor. Then it was mostly back to TV, where he made a ton of guest appearances and co-starred as Rue McClanahan's live-in grandfather on the short-lived Norman Lear-produced sitcom Apple Pie in 1978. In 1985, he was one of the old folks that have a brush with alien superpowers in Ron Howard's Cocoon, and he returned for the sequel in 1988. Guilford also spent over a decade using that expressive face and goofy grin as a commercial pitchman for Cracker Jacks, usually as an obsessed grown-up trying to steal the caramel popcorn and peanut mixture from kids. His 1988 appearance on The Golden Girls was one of his last roles. In 1990, Jack Guilford died of stomach cancer in New York City. It'll be hard to find someone who worked in as many mediums as he did, She's not in the clip above, but Esther Weinstock was played by actress Fritzi Burr, another vaudeville and stage veteran that later transitioned into a long career as a TV and movie character actor. She did two plays on Broadway with Barbara Streisand, I Can Get It For You Wholesale and Funny Girl, and appeared in Chinatown as a standoffish secretary. Burr was a regular presence on TV in the 70s, with recurring appearances on Sanford and Son, What's Happening, and The Rockford Files. She slowed down very little in the 80s and 90s, appearing as the babysitter in Three Ninjas and popping up on You Again, Moonlighting, Friends, and Seinfeld. She was one of Mrs. Costanza's Mahjong partners in the episode The Handicap Spot. Fritzi Bird died in 2003 at the age of 78. 
Sophia's wedding had two other notable guest stars. One was Ray Burke, who played the assertive wedding planner, and who went from acting teacher to prolific character actor, popping up in ALF, Silk Stockings, The Wonder Years, L.A. Law, Naked Gun, and many, many others. He would return as the same character on The Golden Girls in the episode There Goes the Bride to plan Dorothy's ill-fated second wedding to Stan. The second guest star was future director Quentin Tarantino, who played one of the Elvis impersonators in the final scene of part one. He's the guy in the back in the gold jacket who's doing some kind of stiff arm thing that doesn't seem very Elvis-like. Tarantino said in Golden Girls Forever that he wasn't picked based on his dancing skills, just his headshot. But hey, he got paid for it and still does, thanks to all the times it airs either through Sophia's wedding or in the show's many clip compilations been a frequent topic of conversations when he makes appearances on late night shows, as long as the network can actually pay the rights fee to air the clip. Horse racing is the sport of kings, but not because Elvis was a fan. It's still very popular with British royalty, and has barely changed since the days when being king or queen meant more than just being a figurehead. The history of horse racing dates back thousands of years to when tribesmen on the plains of Asia first started domesticating the equine. The ancient Greeks and Romans held bareback races, along with chariot competitions, as popular forms of entertainment. But the British took the sport to a whole other level. Starting around the end of the Crusades, knights would bring horses back home and race against each other. They would also start to breed horses for speed and endurance, while the local nobility would place bets between themselves. In the early 1700s, under the rule of Queen Anne, horse racing went legit. Tracks were built and spectators were allowed to wager on races. It had become lucrative enough for riders and breeders to make a living, and the jockey club was formed as an organizing body to keep everything legal, or at least mostly legal. By the end of the century, a member of the club named John Weatherby logged all of the parentage of each racehorse in England for his general stud book. To this day, all thoroughbreds can have their pedigrees traced back to one of the General Stud Book's three foundation sires. General Stud Book sounds like something Blanche would definitely be interested in. When the British came to the New World, they brought their horses and races with them. The first track in America was New Market Course, established in 1665 in what is now Nassau County, Long Island, aka my homeland. Before the Revolution, horse racing was enjoyed by people across the colonies. John Eisenberg wrote in Smithsonian Magazine in 2004, quote, The population was still too far flung and disparate to agree on much, especially independence, an idea just beginning to percolate. But colonists from Rhode Island to the Carolinas could all agree that nothing was more heavenly than a fast horse, end quote. America finally got its own national stud book and jockey club after the Civil War, when the sport really boomed. At one point, the U.S. had over 300 racetracks in regular operation. The popularity of the sport has risen and fallen at different points in American history. It hit a low at the turn of the century, when gambling was banned in some states, and in the 1980s when no truly great horses captured the public imagination. But horse racing was extremely popular after World War I, thanks mainly to Man of War, and in the 70s when Secretariat, Seattle Slough, and Affirmed all won the Triple Crown. These days it's safe to say the tide is low again, despite American Pharaoh's crown win in 2015. But it's remarkable how little the basic concepts of the sport have changed over these many years. There isn't exactly a lot separating horse racing today from horse racing in the 12th century, except the clothes and the hats 
and OTB. But at the end of the day, the fastest horse wins. And if you're lucky or dirty, you can grab that dough. Horse racing is referenced in three Golden Girls episodes we've talked about before on this podcast. In season two's Family Affair, written by Winifred Hervey, in which we referenced in episode seven, Sophia thinks her and her visiting grandson Michael should spend some bonding time and some of Dorothy's money at the track. Mom, I'm not a child anymore. I wish you wouldn't treat me like one. Oh, don't be ridiculous. I don't treat you like one. Ooh, here's $10. Go take your grandmother to see the journey of Natty Gang. Um, Shut up and take the money. The hell with the movie. We'll double our money at the track, have a nice lunch in the park, and goof on bums. The Journey of Natty Gann was a Disney movie released in 1985 that had a decidedly old-school sensibility. It was about a young girl in the Depression who has to crisscross the country with a dog companion looking for her father. It's the kind of family-friendly movie you'd see with your grandmother as long as she didn't want to go to the track. In season one's Blanche and the Younger Man, written by James Berg and Stan Zimmerman, Rose's mother visits the house and Mrs. Petrillo takes Mrs. Lidstrom to one of her favorite places. Rose, what are you doing home? I came home early to be with Mother. No, my mother took her to the track. You let her out of the house? She dug a tunnel out of her bedroom with a dessert spoon. Oh, my Lord, she's out on the street and it's almost dark. She's fine. She's with my mother. Oh, Sophia's different, Dorothy. She's... she's... She's your mother. My mother's led a very quiet life. All this is going to be too much for her. Come on, honey. She's out betting on the horses, not rounding them up. (laughs) Mother, are you all right? She's fine. I'm 50 bucks in the hole. Look, Rose, I won $400. I told you she was all right. Congratulations, Alma. Mom, I'll be in the living room in case you decide to explain where you got the $50 that you just lost. We're going to talk a lot more about Blanche and the Younger Man in our next episode when we talk about the Golden Girls' deep dive into the 80s workout craze. Clinton Avenue Memoirs is a Golden Girls episode we mentioned in shows two and eight of this podcast. That season five episode, written by Richard Vaxey and Tracy Gamble, shows more about Sal Petrillo's preference for the ponies, as Dorothy remembers a little secret shared between her and her father. Oh, Ma, there are so many memories in this apartment. Don't be so down. You remember the day you brought Phil back from the hospital? I was a little upset, because that was the day Pop usually took me to the zoo. Well, it was the racetrack, but he called it the zoo. (laughs) You kept Phil in this room because it was the warmest room. And I guess I was a little starved for attention because I remember. Daddy, I love you. I love you too, kiddo. Come on, let's go to the zoo. I got a tip on a giraffe and a six race. (laughs) In the flashback, Kyle Hefner plays young Sal and Jandy Swanson plays young Dorothy. Hefner's first screen credit was in Gary Marshall's satire, Young Doctors in Love, and he has also appeared on Flashdance, Runaway Train, When Harry Met Sally, as well as TV series from The Facts of Life to The Scarecrow and Mrs. King to Shameless to Seinfeld, where he played Bizarro George. 
Jandy Swanson had an extensive resume even before appearing on The Golden Girls at age 12. She had been on TV on My Sister Sam, Matlock, Full House, Designing Women, Baywatch, and Star Trek The Next Generation, as well as feature films Less Than Zero and Pumpkinhead. After playing young Dorothy, she was in Ladybugs with Rodney Dangerfield and a few TV movies before getting into producing. And then we have Feelings, the season six episode written by Don Siegel and Jerry Perzigian that we talked about extensively in episode six. While Dorothy feels the pressure to pass a high school quarterback so he can play in a big game, Rose is struggling with the realization that her dentist may have sexually assaulted her. Blanche tries to help by playing psychologist. Cheesecake, good idea. Now we can be old and fat. Let me handle this. Rose, you obviously had a very traumatic childhood. Now, I need to hear your whole life. I want you to start at the beginning and tell me your first memory. Mom, I'm sorry. I didn't want your last days to be like this. <laughs> Close your eyes and think back. What do you see? A cow. <laughs> A chicken, a goat, a lamb, a rooster. No, two roosters. A pig. There's a man with a gun. He lifts the gun up into the air. He shoots it. And they're off! The pig takes the lead. The chicken is in second place. The roosters are Rose, 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 before the menagerie rounds the clubhouse turn, you have to make the decision to confront Dr. Norgan. The clubhouse turn is the first turn past the right section of a racetrack's grandstand. That side of the grandstand, called the clubhouse, has box seats and other accommodations that the other side, which is cheaper and more open for general spectators and families, doesn't have. Sitting in the clubhouse is going to cost you, though. Probably comes with an enforced dress code. But you'll also get a good seat for the race's first turn, home stretch turn, finish line, and winner's circle. Later in season six, we have one more specific horse racing reference. At least, I think it's a horse racing reference. In Older and Wiser, written by Vaxian Gamble and directed by Matthew Diamond, Sophia gets a job as an activities director at a local senior's home. Or, more accurately, she thinks she has a job there. Dorothy wants someone to watch Sophia while she's at work and has arranged to have her mother spend a few hours a day at the center. She cooked up the job story so as not to have Sophia think of Cypress Grove as another Shady Pines. No matter where she is, Sophia is Sophia, which means her new friends eventually end up at the track with her. Hi, pussycat. What are you doing here? Mom, where were you? You said you were just taking them out for a walk. I know, but we got halfway down the block and Lucille said, I want a cappuccino. Well, the only place I know to get a really good cappuccino is Hialeah. Mr. Porter, who runs the Cypress Grove Senior Home, was played by Canadian actor and writer Don Lake, who got early work on two very Canadian TV series, SCTV Network and The Littlest Hobo. He had small roles on the first Police Academy, the Super Mario Brothers movie, and Terminator 2, but has mainly done TV, popping up on Mr. Belvedere, L.A. Law, The Fresh Prince of Bel-Air, Julia Louis-Dreyfus' Watching Ellie, Soul Man, and a short-lived show based on the two Bill and Ted movies. He's also the writing partner of actress Bonnie Hunt, and has written and acted on two of her series, sitcom Life with Bonnie and syndicated chat show The Bonnie Hunt Show. 
Hialeah isn't just the name of a town in South Florida. It's also the home of Hialeah Park, once one of the most revered racetracks in American history. Founded in 1922, thoroughbred races began there in 1925, and after sustaining some hurricane damage a year later, it was renovated and expanded, becoming known for the rest of the century as the world's most beautiful race course. It also attracted scores of pink flamingos, which became the park's calling card, and eventually would get it designated as an official sanctuary by the Audubon Society. Famous horses that ran at Hialeah Park include Seabiscuit, Citation, and Seattle Slough, and movies like Let It Ride and The Champ filmed scenes on its historic, picturesque grounds. Hialeah Park stopped running horses in 2001, but it brought back winter quarter horse races in 2013. It's also got casino gambling now, and plans to add a hotel, movie theater, and other retail and entertainment to the track once called The Grand Dam. Older and Wiser aired on February 16, 1991. I don't know how good the cappuccino was at Hialeah back then, but they've got six restaurants there now, so I'm sure you could find one to your liking. The first part of Sophia's Wedding is one of the show's funniest and most diversified episodes. It's unfortunate that the second half kind of weighs it down, but all the Elvis fan club stuff is absolute gold, and it includes a couple of hilariously bawdy jokes about two 80-year-olds getting into bed together. And yet, despite all that absurdity, it still retains the warmth and love the Golden Girls are always known for. Horse racing might be centuries old, but in movie and TV language, it's generally used to stand for something shady or someone doing something shady. Sal and Max losing their business because of a horse gives it an edge, rather than if one of them had just been a lousy bookkeeper. And having 80-year-old Sophia frequent the track gives an already edgy character a little extra edge. Doesn't sound like she ever won any money there, but at least she had fun. Next time on Golden Girls Sports, it's our second season finale. So get out your leotard and your leg warmers because we're going to get physical. Golden Girls Sports is written, produced, and narrated by Dan Saracini. The theme is Golden Sunrise, instrumental version by Josh Woodward, and is available at freemusicarchive.org. Visit goldengirlssportspodcast.com for show notes and references, and follow us on Twitter at Golden Girls SP. Thanks for listening. <laughs>